if you have your Bible or a Bible app, or you can use a pew Bible in front of you. Turn with me to uh, the book of Genesis. And so we continue our storyline of the Bible um, sermon series. That's where we're going to be for all of 2020. And the next uh, major theme or story in the storyline series is um, Genesis chapter 6. It's the story of Noah um, and the ark. And so looking forward to it. So Genesis chapter 6. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, it's actually page 5. Now, those of you that are doing your, um, your daily readings or your five-day-a-week readings, you're reading through with us, I know you're way far ahead of us. You're almost to the end of, of Genesis. I get that. Um, believe me, like I said, we're going to start in the same place. We're going to end in the same place. We're going to diverge some, but uh, we'll, we'll get there. I mean, we're going we're gonna to cover a, a, a lot of ground rather quickly as we um, preach. So, all right, Genesis chapter, chapter 6. And we're going to jump around. Um, I said jump, jump, jump around. No. It's Sean's fault. He's the one that started it with the jumping. Um, it is, let me turn on this timer. We'll be here for a long time. All right. Genesis chapter 6, let's start in verse 5. <clears throat> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and, and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, the breadth, 50 cubit, cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which, it, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. 
Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now let's jump over into uh, the ninth chapter. So the seventh chapter just covers basically Noah does exactly what God tells him to do. He builds the ark. Chapter eight, the flood, as God promised, the flood comes, the ark is lifted. Everyone and everything, just as God said, perishes. Only what is inside the ark survives. The ark comes to rest on a mountaintop. The waters recede. Um, Noah sends out a raven and then a dove. And finally, he knows that he can exit the ark and uh, Noah exits the ark. And then, like I said, in chapter nine, verse seven, and you, this is God's word to Noah, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring God, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, as we turn our attention and our minds to your word, Lord, may we may help us to keep the main thing the main thing as we see this. Certainly there are questions that we can ask here, Lord, but let us hear what, you, what you're proclaiming to us, what you're teaching through us, uh, what you're teaching through your word, Lord, as we study this. Be near to us, Lord. We love you. Engender more love, Lord. May we see your great grace in this. This is a story of your patience and your grace and your salvation. May we see that. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. Um, as we hear again, um, maybe for some of you who, who aren't doing the reading, as we hear again afresh the, the story of Noah and the ark, I mean, I think it's safe to say there are probably a lot of misconceptions about Noah and the ark. I, I say that because um, what parent in their right mind would choose Noah and the ark as the theme for your child's nursery, right? I mean, it's, it's uber popular and some of you may have done it and that's okay, but maybe you just miss what the point of the story is. Like the point of the story of Noah's ark is this, that God hates sin. He punishes unrepentant sinners with unspeakable judgment. That's what the story of Noah's ark is. You put it on murals on your wall. I mean, what are you saying to your child? Go to sleep, you little sinner, and don't forget, God sees you and will judge you. I mean, that's what you're saying to your kids. That's what you're reminding them. It kind of makes me feel hopeful for my idea 
Uh, my idea is similar. I want to have like the four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of theme. Or you may eat of the fruit of any tree in the garden, but do not eat of this one, the knowledge of good and evil, but also under God's blessing, the blessing of creation, the blessing of each other, the blessing of relationship, all of those things. And then Genesis 3 happens in the fall. And what we see is that the, the, the kingdom is perished now, that God's people is no one. God's place is now it's exile. Adam and Eve have been forced out of the garden. Flaming cherubim are guarding the garden. Under God's rule and under God's blessing, well, now it's disobedience and, and a curse. That's where, that's where we are under the perished kingdom. But as God has purposed to let creation be an overflow of his goodness, an overflow of his, of his nature and attributes, that what God's declaring is that man's sin will not thwart the plans of God. And God's plan still remains to fill the earth with his glory. That's what he's still going to do. And because of that, because of man's sin, but yet God's, God's purpose and God's plan, we see a new pattern emerge and it's the pattern of redemption. And so if you're taking notes, we're gonna draw out a, a diagram and the diagram will look like this and we're gonna visit it often and, and maybe you'll be able to even recognize it um, as, I, as I put it up. You'll see it again and again throughout the um, storyline of the Bible. And it looks like this. Here's the pattern of redemption. It's first that man sins. And as man, when man sins, next is that God judges. God brings judgment because of man's sin. God is just in that. Next is God rescues. This is, we'll, we'll talk, we'll get there. And then next is the saved worship. So there's the pattern of redemption. Man sins, God brings judgment, but even in the midst of God's judgment, God rescues and the saved then worship. And let me fill in just a, a couple more words that were in our text. They're in the, story of Noah that are important is um, the word grief, the word grace, and the word faith. Man sins, God judges, God rescues, the saved worship. Three other words that I want us to talk about is grief, grace, and faith. We'll start with man's sins. That's what we read in the text. Several hundred years have transpired, 10 generations between Genesis chapter three and Genesis chapter six. And this is when we get to Genesis chapter six, this is what God says about the, about the condition of mankind. He says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually that we see as sin is the problem, that the sin of Adam has corrupted humanity and it's corrupted it not just in the actions, it's co corrupted it in the heart. The sin isn't just sinful actions, things that we do that are wrong, that, that disobey God. It's not just the evil that we do, but what we see here happening is God's given an indictment of the heart of man, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart we're only evil. And that's the way that sin works. It's corrupted us. 
This isn't just true of, of pre-flood and then the flood fixes it. That what we'll even see throughout the text of scripture, in fact, in fact we even, if we would have read all of Genesis 6, 7, and 8, we would have seen it, and 9, we would have seen it in there as well. That after the flood, even God says in Genesis 8, 21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. But then he says this, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. David writes in Psalm 51 that I was conceived in iniquity, he says, that I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about an illicit relationship to which he was conceived. He's just saying that my heart is corrupt, that I'm born a sinner. I'm born corrupt. The way that sin works, it's like a, it's like a virus that we're all born with. It's like, a, it's like a burying toxic waste down into the ground. It always leaches out. And that is true of us. That sin has been buried deep in our hearts because of Adam's sin. And it leaches out in our actions. It leaches out in our, in our unbelief and in our hatred. It leaches out in our hearts when we're, when, through racism and through violence and through self-righteousness and a, a just God responds. That's what a just God, a just creator, a just father, he's going to respond to the injustices. He's going to respond to sin. He's going to respond to, to disobedience that even in this, we're made in God's image and we reflect this. Like if you take your children to, uh, to an evil place, to a horrible place, to, to, to uh, a reflection of hell on earth, I'm talking about the, the playground inside Chick-fil-A. If you take your kids in there, and you stand on the outside through the glass and you look in and you see your kid getting bullied? What is What rises up in you? You wanna punish that child that's bullying your kid and you wanna rescue your kid and our hearts are a reflection of that. So we watch the news and we see stories of, of the way that people suffer injustice. Something rises up in our hearts and in the same way as God looks upon his creation and he sees only wickedness. All of man's thoughts, all of his intentions, they are perpetually wicked, continuously wicked. God judges, he brings judgment. Genesis 6, 5 is the verdict. It's a statement of judgment. Um, in 6, 6, it says this, and the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now listen, God's word is, a, it's revealing God to us. We say that first and foremost, God's word is a, it's self-disclosure. It's a revelation of who God is, but we are made in God's image. But you and I, we gotta be careful that we don't return the favor by making God in our image. You and I are made in the likeness and the image of God. That is true. But you and I can't look at God and say, well, God must be like us. That's not true. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio. We reflect God, but we're like the carnival mirror. He's really big and we're really small. And so when you read in the, in the text of scripture, things like God regrets and God grieves, it isn't that God didn't know. It's not like God didn't know, hey, I didn't know you could do that with your body. Hey, I didn't know that you guys were gonna do this evil. It's not that God regretted it in a sense that you and I show regret, but as God's revealing himself to us, he's bound to use words and concepts that you and I can understand. And so in no way does God's regret nullify his omniscience. He still knows everything. It isn't that. In fact, what God's doing here is God is revealing his heart to us. He's not just revealing all of his attributes to us, but here he's revealing his nature to us to say, this is what my heart is like. Here's the point. Our sin 
affects the heart of God. In fact, for those of you that are in your uh, community groups, our community groups are using these booklets and I I love the way that the author put it um, whenever he spoke about this very text of scripture um, here in, in these booklets. He said this, that we see from the grieving from the grieving of God's heart, something very unique. The all-powerful being who created the universe has voluntarily, and that's an important distinction, he's voluntarily bound his heart with, a man, with man when he formed him with his hands. We weren't just made in God's image. We received God's love and God's heartfelt affection so our, so our idolatry and our rebelliousness then, it's like a knife in his back, a knife to the heart. Though we are about to see how, how holy God must respond to, how a holy God must respond and punish sin, we remember that there is grief alongside of his righteous anger, that God justly judges sin Yet his unfailing love manifests itself through his glorious grace. And this is what we see in the story of Noah. It's what I've said, I think every week, that every sin that is committed is first a betrayal of a father's love. And that's what we see here. We see a father who grieves the rebelliousness of his creation. In fact, actually the language that's being used here Maybe even it evokes a more vulnerable picture of God's heart than even that. That when it says here that God's heart was grieved, the word being used in the Bible, in the Hebrew, is the word that's used here for a wife who is betrayed and abandoned by their spouse, by their husband. That sin is unfaithfulness to God. And that's what God saw. As God looked upon creation. He just didn't see wickedness and evil, but he was grieved in his heart because he saw it as an unfaithful people to him. And the punishment for, the, the punishment for sin, it's the same punishment throughout the Bible. It's the same punishment in the garden, Eden. The punishment for sin is death. In Genesis 2, 16, that's what he said. For in the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. That is the punishment, death. And that's what God brings. Verse number seven, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. For I am sorry that I have made them. Now listen, this does not reveal God's this does not re- reveal God's quick temper and anger. In fact, this reveals the opposite. This reveals God's patience. It reveals God's patience. That God warns the people. Genesis chapter six, verse three says, then the, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. It took Noah 120 years, right about 120 years to build the ark. The apostle Peter in his um, epistle, 
in the New Testament, first and second Peter. I think this one is in second Peter that he says that while Noah is building the ark, that Noah is a, a preacher. He's a preacher of judgment. That Noah in many ways is the first prophet of God, hearing God's word of warning and sharing that, proclaiming that to the people, calling people to repentance. The building of the ark was a testimony. Noah's building this ark in the, in the middle of the mountains, not on a beach line, not on a coastline. And as he's building this all the while for 120 years, generation after generation, he's proclaiming to them repentance. He's saying God is being patient, but his patience has an expiration date. There's a moment when his patience, when his promise will be fulfilled and then it will be too late. The next verse is remarkable. In the midst of all this sin, it's at verse number eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the God rescues peace. Favor is, is grace. Grace is favor. In fact, grace means unmerited favor. What was so special about Noah? Here's what's so special about Noah, nothing. There's really nothing special about Noah. Verse number nine tells us that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. But does that mean he had no sin in his heart? Absolutely not. Apostle Paul even says in Romans uh, chapter five and six that all born after Adam are in sin. Everyone is in sin under Adam. The same corruption that is in everyone else's heart is in Noah's heart. He's part of the same human evil race. What the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven seven says that Noah's righteousness is a righteousness that is accredited to him. It's counted to him because Noah responded to God's gift, to God's offer of salvation. Hebrews eleven seven. 7, it's by faith, he says. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In fact, this is the pattern of redemption. It's a pattern that always comes by faith and through faith, believing in God and believing God, that our actions reveal our faith and Noah's righteousness was the righteousness that comes by faith. It's gift righteousness. It's not a righteousness that comes by being perfect, not a righteousness that is earned by walking with God, but a righteousness that God gives to you when you believe what he says, when you receive what he says, when you surrender to what he says, when you act obediently, not perfectly, but with surrendered obedience, Noah is a picture of that. That we respond to God's gracious offer of rescue, salvation by faith and obedience to whatever he commands us to do. That's the pattern. You're gonna see it again in the children of Israel. You're gonna see it even in, in Abraham in just a few weeks. Abraham believed God and it was a credit to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. It's not a righteousness that he possessed or had. As Martin Luther would say, it's an alien righteousness. It's not his. That don't mean extra, that's not E.T. when he says alien. That's something foreign to him. It's not his, but it's what is counted to him. Verse number 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside 
and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length is 300 cubits, breadth 50 cubits, height 30 cubits. Now this isn't in the text, but do you know what Noah said back to God? Whenever God said in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Do you know what Noah's response is? Where do you find gopher wood? And where's my saw? That's what, or ax, or however he chopped it down. That was Noah's response. That every tree felled, every board sawed, every board hewn, every log that was put in place was an obedient act of faith. A response to the grace that had been shown to Noah. That when God said, I'm gonna judge the earth and rightly decided to destroy it, yet in grace, he offered Noah a means of salvation and told Noah, tell others to repent, to come, to join you in the ark. I'm making a means of escape, a means of provision. That's not something that Noah passed up. He didn't question God and say, God, why don't you make a boat, a plane, a helicopter, and a train to get out of here? How dare you just make one means of escape? He didn't question God. He didn't question God's judgment. He didn't say, God, a little harsh, aren't you? Why don't you lighten up? None of those things. He simply surrendered to God's gracious offer and he received it and he acted in obedience to it. That's all that he did. And in fact, that's the pattern. The pattern that comes next is we receive grace, the saved, those who are rescued, we, we worship. After 120 years of building the ark, after the flood, after the floodwaters recede, after 150 days on the ark. Now picture that. He's hemmed in, in an ark, him and his wife and his kids and his daughter-in-laws and a whole slew of animals for 150 days, in through a flood, all of this. Finally, he, the door is open and he comes out and what's the first thing he does? He falls to his knees and says, praise the Lord, which is the same thing you and I would do. In all seriousness, he worships God. Chapter eight, verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. But here's the truth. Don't think that this is the first time Noah worshiped the Lord. Noah's been worshiping the Lord the entire time. The high, trusting God is our highest form of worship, church. Trusting, not just trusting, not just believing in God, but again, what does he want? What does faith look like? It looks like trust in our lives. Faith in God isn't just believing and saying, yes, I, I believe in the existence of, of a God. That's, that's, not, that's not Christianity. That's theism, but that's not Christianity. That doesn't give you, that don't get you to heaven either. The Bible says that's what the demons believe. But even more than that, what God is after is not just for us to believe in him, but us to believe him. And that's what Noah is doing. That's the pattern. That's the picture. As those who receive God's free grace and a gift righteousness, we trust him as an act of worship to him. Noah trusted the word of the Lord. Noah trusted as he built an ark for 120 years. Not a drop of rain. Possibly had never rained, but he heard God's word. God told him to build it. So what did Noah do? He, he built it. Middle of a, of, a, of a 
mountain. He's building this for 120 years. Faith may make you look like a fool to the world. It did to Noah. If you and I were alive during this time, we might ask Noah, Noah, you gonna build you an F-350 as well so you can drag your big boat down to the beach? I mean, he's in the middle of, he's not building it on the coastline or the shoreline. Trusting in the Lord may look like, make us look like fools. Noah trusted the Lord as he collected the animals. Noah trusted the Lord as his family climbed into the ark. Noah trusted the Lord as the waters came up. Now notice that there's nothing mentioned about a sail on this ark. Nothing's mentioned about a rudder on this ark. Nothing's mentioned about a, a steering wheel, What's that? a helm on this boat, is it? Nothing is mentioned about any of those things. That Noah and his family, they are, they're, they're where? where? Where's Noah and his family though? They're inside the ark and they're just at the, at the, at the complete trust of God. The waters have, are tumultuous as they turn. And you know, some of you, you've, you've been whitewater rafting. That's what's happening. It's a flash flood that's lasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's in there with no control, but where is he? Where is Noah and his family? Well, you remember as uh, the story's being constructed, there's no rudder, but you remember what God told uh, Noah and his family? He said, take some beams. And here's what I want you to do. Extend two big, large beams to go out the sides of the boat. And that's where you and your family are gonna hold on for dear life while the flood rises. Do you remember that in the story? because it's not in the story. Where are they? They're safely placed inside of the boat. And this is a picture. If I can think of any pictures, I got five pictures of the Christian life. This would be one of them. That you and I, we are placed safely in Christ. We're in him. The store is sealed up. But here's the truth. We're in there with very little control. We're in there with just trust in a sovereign and trust in a good God. <laughs> and outside it gets crazy. The seas rage and roll and twist and turn and we're just in there, not holding on for dear life, but we're in there safely and securely in Christ. We're, we're, we're in the boat, we're confident, we're surrendered trust. Some of you are like, no, where's the, where I could steer this ship a lot better than God can. No, you can't. No, you can't. And faith in Christ is trust in him. The highest form of worship that you and I can have is in the midst of a flood is to trust the Lord, to trust in him and to trust him. The waters recede. The ark lands on a mountain, the doors open. In chapter nine, verse 11, we read this, God makes a covenant. I will establish my covenant with you that there will never again, I'm in uh, chapter nine, verse 11, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
This is the first time in the Bible that the word covenant is used, but it's a good lens for us to see the storyline of the Bible. We'll talk again about covenant when we get to Abraham, Abram, as he's called in the beginning. We'll talk again when we get to to Moses and the Mosaic covenant. We'll talk again about David. In fact, there's five major covenants throughout the Bible. This is one of them. And what a covenant is, is a covenant is an oath bound agreement between two parties. So it's bound together by an oath, by a promise. Biblically, it is God promising something to his people. Here, the second party. So it's God making a promise to another party. The second party is Noah and then creation and future generations. And the promise that God makes is that he will not destroy all the earth by a flood again. This is what's called a unilateral covenant, which is not dependent upon them. What is creation? What is the future generations to do? Nothing. God's just saying, this is my promise. I'm not gonna destroy the earth and everything in it by a flood again in the future. That's my covenant. It's not dependent upon you. This is actually the baseline for common grace. The reason why all of creation can, in, can enjoy God's creation can enjoy common grace, things that we find like marriage and having children and experiencing love and experiencing oxygen and experiencing all of those things is the baseline for that is found here in his promise he makes with Noah. He gives a sign of the covenant, a way for us to remember the covenant, a way for God to remember it, a way to point us to the remembering it. And what is the sign of the covenant? Well, he hangs a bow. He says, I hang a bow into the clouds. Now, an oddity about bow. Now you and I know that that's the rainbow. Every time you see a rainbow, that's God's promise. I'm not gonna destroy the earth. In fact, you can think about how a rainbow comes. Generally a rainbow comes when? After a storm, same thing. God's storm of his judgment has come and now there's a rainbow across the sky. But the word in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis that is used is not the word rainbow. It's just the word bow. I've hung a bow in the sky, that's the word that he's using. Like a like an archer's bow, like a war bow. That's what he's hung in the side. And what God is saying is, I've hung my, I've hung my war bow. Like we, th- we don't think of a rainbow. In fact, we think of it the opposite. We think somewhere over the rainbow, right? We think there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, but that's not the imagery that's to come up. Again, when you study it in its context, it's come at the end of judgment. What God is saying is I've hung my war bow in the sky. Ultimately, what he's saying here is that I'm not going to accomplish ultimate redemption by shooting the arrows of my wrath into man. That's what he's saying. In fact, if you think about it, which way is, if, that, if a rainbow is just that, a war bow, then which way is it pointing? Which way is the business end of the, rainbow, of the bow pointing? Back up towards heaven. That's the way he's going to accomplish ultimate redemption is by shooting a bow into heaven, into his son, into himself. The pattern of redemption does not accomplish, this is truth, this, I'm sorry, this pattern of redemption though that we find in Noah does not accomplish ultimate redemption. And here's how we know that. It's in the end of the story. That despite God's grace, despite God's salvation, man still sins. The sin is just as much a problem after the flood as it was 
before the flood. The flood of judgment did not eradicate sin. The covenant of grace did not guarantee righteousness. And we see this in the end of the story in Genesis 9, 18 through 28. Now, again, it's part of the story that we forget. It's part of the story that I would say that most of us forget. It's the part of the story that probably your Sunday school teacher didn't teach this. There probably wasn't the moment in the story where they pulled drunk Noah out and put him naked in the tent. Come on, kids, here's the flannel graph. Now take Noah and put him back in his tent. Now cover him up. But that's how the story ends. The story ends that even though the saved worship, but still man sins. And we see it even in Noah, that the story of Noah ends just like Noah's great-great-grandfather, Adam. The story of Noah ends with Noah making wine and getting drunk and passing out naked in his tent. His sons come in and they cover him. Not in the kid's mural, is it? No. But doesn't that sound familiar? Adam and Eve end with them, although they're sober, but they're in a garden naked and needing to be covered. And Noah, the story of Noah ends the same. Noah's naked and needing to be covered. It ends in the same way that it began truthfully. For God knew the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, but yet God still promised, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This is God's admission that the flood didn't fix the problem. The virus still remains. The redemption plan establishes the pattern and it points us forward to a final redemption plan. God's ultimate redemption will involve a sinless man, a perfect man, the God man. He will be sinless, yet he will take on God's judgment. He'll be a greater prophet than Noah he too will enter into a garden and drink, only he won't drink wine. He certainly will not become intoxicated, but he will drink the cup of God's wrath and God's judgment. He will succumb to the judgment of God as he dies on a cross, taking on God's wrath for man's sin. God has placed his war bow in the sky and it points upward and God will wipe away evil and create a new humanity. He will ultimately create a new humanity by firing his arrow of judgment into his son, Jesus. Jesus is the evidence of God's grace. He's the evidence of God's favor to those who believe. Jesus is the ark of God's salvation to those of us who receive God's grace. May we may enter into him, that just as the ark would be opened up so that Noah and his family may enter in, so Christ's side will be opened up so that you and I by faith may enter in. In Christ becomes the apostle Paul, favorite designation for the Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are safely and securely in him. Just as Noah and his family were safely in the ark. Christ is the new Adam, the better Noah, who creates a new people, a people of praise and worship, who fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. Christ is the better ark who transports the people of God to a new mountain, not Mount Eret, but the mountain of the Lord, which is heaven in the very presence of God. As we close, let me ask just three questions. Number one is, have you fled inside the ark? Have you fled to the ark for safety? 
that in fact, Jesus picks up on this very story and Jesus says that in the last days, in these present days, they'll be just like the days of Noah. That in the days of Noah, that there was uh, eating and drinking and marrying and giving to marriage and they were unaware that the day had come. They were unaware that God's expiration of his patience had come. But just as God promised that generation that judgment was coming, so he has promised us and the expiration date of God's patience is coming. The question for you is, have you obediently responded to God's free offer of grace? Have you obediently responded by faith in Christ? Ask Christ to save you. Have you fled to the ark that is Jesus where you shall be saved by God and from God? Saved by by the Lord and by the Lord's work. And what are you saved from? Well, you're saved from God's judgment. That is what you're saved from. Number two, let me ask you, for those of you that would say, yes, that's me, I am. Do you feel insecure inside? Do you feel secure in your faith in tumultuous times? Peter is writing to the Christians who have been scattered due to persecution in 1 Peter. He's giving them a word of perseverance in order for them to endure. And he reminds them that just as God placed Noah and his family in the, in the ark and he brought them safely through the water, so God is taking us, his people, safely through the waters of judgment and turmoil and he will deliver us. Some of you, you need to remind your hearts of that. The apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that faith produces hope that faith produces joy, that faith produces endurance, that faith produces character, that all of these things enable us to know that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts. And so let me ask you, those of you that may say, I can understand this because I feel like I'm in a storm right now. I feel like I'm in tumultuous waters right now, unsure of direction, unsure where I'm going, but yet in the midst of that, are you secure in the Father's love? Those of you that may be in times and seasons of suffering, God's common grace does not negate the truth. This is a fallen world, fallen creation, corrupt, and we well suffer. Nowhere in scripture does God promise Christians or his people that you will not suffer. Like if you see the guy on TBN preaching that, change the channels or shoot the TV. Because it is untrue. It is absolutely untrue. But those of you that are in a time of suffering, his promise is that through your faith in me that you can have assurance of your salvation. You can have confidence in me. You can have assurance that I am with you and for you in those times that I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. Tell your heart that, preach that truth to your heart. There's no steering wheel on this thing. Yeah, I get it. I I would control it differently. I feel so out of control in my life. Yeah, I get it, but guess who's in control? One who is better, a sovereign and a good God. And lastly, are you warning others, Christians? That's the mission. That we like Noah, we are living our lives to tell others of the impending judgment of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have offered to us a better means of escape than even Noah's ark. You've offered to us a means to withstand and endure your day of judgment. 
that we know that you, Jesus, will come back and you're going to, you're going to judge the earth again. Just like you brought judgment here, you're going to judge it again. All of creation, all of humanity will be judged before you. And the means of escape is through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. Jesus' blood was shed to cover our sins. We can have faith in you. We can have belief in you, Lord. We can experience forgiveness for our sins, that the truth of what is said about humanity, it extends to us. There probably isn't a person in this room that would say, my every thought is continuously evil, but that is a declaration of your word. That even in the midst of what feels like to us good, righteous thoughts, helpful thoughts that most of us, many times we do it for our own self-righteousness. We do it for ourselves. That even in the good that we do, it's tainted with our flesh. It's tainted with uh, sin, that it's leached out and it's touched every part of us. And apart from us having faith in you, apart from us throwing ourselves on your mercy and your grace, Lord, then we find wanting. But for those of us who do, you place us in your ark. You Secure, you make us secure inside of you. You extend grace that covers all of our sins. And Lord, because of that, we wanna trust you. We wanna trust you. The highest form of, of worship to you is when we trust you. We wanna trust you with all of our lives, with all that we are, Lord. And that speaks a ton about the temperature and climate of our hearts even now, Lord. And so Lord, as we come to this time and this place where we remembered you, Jesus, may this speak a better word than our suffering. May this bread that we eat, this juice that we drink, may it speak a better testimony than our present suffering. May it remind us of whose we are and that we're safely inside of you. And your promise is to carry us through the turmoils of this life and to deliver us in your presence. May this engender faith and worship to you. In your name we pray, amen.